Our sermon today is taken from 2 Samuel 6, verse 1 to 15. Here's the word of God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bali, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lures and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed this household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fat animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we're continuing in our short series on the topic of God's holiness, where we'll be studying different passages in the Bible that talks about God's holiness. And we have one more sermon on this topic next Sunday. And then after that, we're going to be starting our longer series through the book of Acts. But for today, we are still going to be talking about God's holiness, and specifically from the passage that we just read from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 to 15. Before we start, let me just briefly summarize again what we've already learned about what the Bible means when it says that God is holy. A lot of people think uh, holiness just means moral purity. Right? So, so if God is holy, that means he's without sin. Now, that's true, but it's much more than that. When the Bible says God is holy, it means that he's completely different, completely other than anything else in creation, so much so that he can't be measured by any of our scales. That's what, what holiness means. So if we say something like this, a thief is this righteous, an honest man is this righteous, a pastor is this righteous, an apostle's this righteous, and God's this righteous, if we're thinking like that, that means we still don't understand the concept of God being holy because we're still thinking of God in the same uh, scale as, as creatures, but he's not a creature, you see. Or if we say something like this, Tazar's this strong, Sam's this strong, Davin's this strong, Riza's this strong, and Joe's this strong, not making claims if that's a proper scale or not. I'm just saying hypothetically, if we think like that, and then we say God's this strong, we're still not understanding the concept of God's holiness because we're still 
measuring God in the scale of creatures, you see, but his power is beyond any of our conceivable scales. That's why the Bible doesn't say God's wisdom is better than the world's wisdom. You notice that? It says God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. It's on a totally different scale. Altogether, it makes no sense to the world. That's what it means for God to be holy. And if, if this is true, that God is this holy, that should terrify us. Why? Because that means his sense of justice, his understanding of fairness, his moral expectations, his moral purity, all of it is off the scale. It's beyond scaling. It, it's scary. It's dreadful. But at the same time, a God that's this holy should also give us a deep sense of comfort because this means that his love, you see, his mercy, his patience toward you and me, his grace and his kindness is also beyond any conceivable scale that we can think of. So it's scary and dreadful, but also comforting and assuring. Seeing God's holiness produces all kinds of emotion in us, which is what we see happening to David here in our passage. When we just saw how holy God is, or when David just saw how holy God is, he felt all kinds of things too, which will be our points for today. When you realize how holy God is, you'll either be angry and scared, or you'll sing and dance. When you realize how holy God is, you'll either be angry and scared, or you'll sing and dance. Let's go to our first point. When we realize how holy God is. Now, you won't understand what's going on in this passage unless we first see the proper historical context that, that it's in. Okay, so, so stick with me here. I'm going to do a bit of that. First, let's talk about this ark. Okay, this ark of God. What's the big deal about this ark? So, People in the Old Testament, just like us today, have a hard time really understanding the concept of, of God's holiness. It's, it's just so hard to, to grasp. And because of that, God would take objects that are tangible, visible, touchable, real, earthly objects and make those things holy, right? To, to represent or symbolize His holiness. So, for example, think about Mount Sinai. When God came upon it, made it holy, what is it? All it is is a pile of dirt and rocks. But when God's glory came upon it, the pile, that pile of dirt and rocks became holy all of a sudden, right? You can't touch the mountain, and you can't go up the mountain, all the high priest can, and all that. Think about the Old Testament temple. All it is is wood, stone, and some fabric. But when God's presence came upon it, all of a sudden you can't enter it, it became holy, right? It became representative of, of, of God. The ark of God in our passage today is it's one of those things. All it is is a box made out of wood and gold. It's uh, one and a half meters long, one meter wide, and one meter high. And in it, there's the Ten Commandments, which again are just two stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments carved into it. Nothing special about these items in within themselves. What made it special is that God decided that this is going to be one of those items that he would make holy, and his glory was upon it. And that's why this ark was such a big deal to the Israelites. Now, another small piece of history you got to know is that 70 years before the event of our passage today, the Philistines beat the Israelites up in, in war and, and took this ark from them. That happened 17 years ago, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And now, 70 years later, Israel has a new king, right, David, and he wanted the ark back. So, one chapter before our story today, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David attacked the Philistines and he won, right? He won the ark back. Now, in chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, look at verse 1. 
David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him before Baal Judah to bring up from, the, from there the Ark of God. But, but think about this. Remember, David already beat the Philistines in chapter 5, right? We just said that. So why would he gather 30,000 men now in chapter 6 to get the Ark? To do what? He's already won the battle. Well, these people were here not to fight but to party. <laughs> That's what's happening in our passage today. It's a nationwide party. Think about a country that just won the World Cup, right? And the team captain brings back the trophy home, and thousands of people are cheering, are singing. Look at verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Imagine the music, the dancing, the colors, the joy. This was a huge festival celebrating the return of the Ark of God. But if you know your Old Testaments, you would see something in this story which would hint that this party didn't please God at all. Where do we see that? Go to verse 3. It says, they carried the Ark of God on a new cart. That's an important detail. David forgot the protocol of how to carry the Ark of God. In Numbers chapter 7, verse 9, God gave specific instructions that the Ark has to be carried by priests, not on a cart. So imagine the four corners of this golden box would be attached to like these rings, and then two big wooden sticks would go through those rings, and there'll be two priests at the front and two priests at the back carrying the Ark. That's a protocol. David broke protocol. But not only that, what's worse is that carrying the ark on a cart like this was the way that other nations would carry the statues of their false gods too. So, so back then, different nations would show off their gods, right, by, by putting it on a cart and kind of parade it around to the other nations, kind of saying, look who's on our team, you know? It's Baal, or it's another false god, to taunt other nations. So what's happening here is that by putting the ark on a cart, David failed to treat God as holy, as different than the other false gods of the nation. That's the picture we have here. David's on his horse, right? High and mighty in the front of the line. He's the hero. He's the savior. And then his minions are kind of like behind him, following him along, including the ark behind him that was placed on a cart like some kind of trophy to be used under David's direction for his own agenda to taunt other nations. And God said, nope, that's not going to do it. So we get to verse 6 and 8. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So what happened was one of the wheels of this cart that shouldn't have been carrying the ark in the first place, right? One of the wheels hit this rock on the threshing floor of, of Nacon, and the ark tilted a bit, and, and Uzzah was scared it was going to fall to the ground, so he just kind of, you know, held it with his hand, balanced it. And at that moment, when he touched the ark, God's wrath kindled against him, and he died. And this is the part of the story that understandably evokes certain emotions from us, doesn't it? Confusion, anger, right? Really, God? 
Really? So what? Uzzah should have just let the ark fall to the ground? Yes, he should have. In my neighborhood, sometimes we have a small number of us get together and, and we grill out. And it's all outdoors and safe, so don't worry. Sometimes we use electric grill. Sometimes we use charcoal. And I remember this one time we were using charcoal and I was in charge of the grill and something happened to where someone knocked over the grill a bit and some of the burning hot charcoal kind of fell out of the grill to the ground. And you best believe I let that burning hot coal fall to the ground. There is no way on earth I try and catch it. To be honest, the thought of catching it didn't even enter my brain. Why not? Because I held the heat of that charcoal with very high regard. I revered the heat. I knew it was so powerful that it seared my skin off at contact. So, so my knee-jerk reaction is to get out of the way, not to, not to catch it. Uzzah's reaction of just casually holding the ark shows us he did not hold the holiness of God with very high regard. If he did, the option of touching it wouldn't even enter his mind. Okay, but, you know, some people may think, what if Uzzah thought, you know, I will sacrifice myself to prevent the ark from getting dirty and falling into the, the dirt on the ground? What if that's what he thought? Well, now I'm going to say something that's a little bit harsh now, okay? How presumptuous of Uzzah to think that his sinful hands are cleaner than the dirt on the ground? You think God's worried about touching a little dirt? God's glory touched all the dirt in Mount Sinai. Remember? God's glory touched all the dirt in the ground surrounding the burning bush or the unburning bush in Exodus chapter 3 before Moses. God's not scared of a little dirt. He never said he can't touch dirt. You know what he did say he can't touch? Sin. Something the dirt had none of but something that Uzzah, David, you, and I are full of. That's why God explicitly commanded in Numbers chapter 4 that no one can touch the ark because he's holy. Yet David and Uzzah and the whole group of people there who paraded God around like a trophy failed to revere God as holy. And when Uzzah's body touched the ground, it's as if God grabbed a loudspeaker and shouted in the middle of that party, enough, I will not be your trophy. And all of a sudden, the music stopped, the dancing ended, and David realized God can't be tamed. And the first emotional reaction David had when he realized just how holy God is, is anger. Which leads us to our second point. Realizing just how holy God is might make us angry and scared. Let's go to verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Kings, like many of us, love power. Love the feeling of being in control. And when someone who loves power feels powerless, like David must have felt at this moment, their first gut response is usually to try and regain that lost power. Now, think about it. 
out of all the emotions available to the human race, which one do you think produces the most feeling of power in our bodies? Anger. If you notice when you're angry, your heart rate increases, the speed of your blood flow picks up, you become more alert, right? Um, ready for action. Anger makes us feel powerful. That's why when someone hurts you and makes you feel powerless in the past, a feeling that's often associated with that experience is anger. Because anger can help us feel like we still somehow have some kind of control over the situation, whether that's true or not. God here just got done making King David feel powerless. What God did to Uzzah reminded David that God can't be tamed for his own agenda. And David's knee-jerk reaction to that powerlessness is to want to regain that power. So he got angry. He got angry. But that anger very quickly turned into fear. Look at verse 9, immediately after verse 8. It immediately says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. David's anger immediately turned into fear. Why? Because David realized that he can't do anything about it. Look at the literary contrast here. Verse 7 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And then verse 8 says, And David was angry at the Lord. See the word anger used twice there? It's like God's anger was pinned against David's anger, as if the author is subtly asking, Who wins here? <laughs> Who wins this matchup? And David knew the answer. That's why his anger immediately turned into fear. Now, I think this actually shows the humility of David. Because many of us, we stay angry, don't we? At some point of our lives, God takes out the loudspeaker as well, allows something to happen, and it felt like the music stopped. And like David, we get angry at God. But unlike David, oftentimes we stay angry for weeks, for months, for years. And we'll do anything to hold on to that anger. Do you know why? Because what feeling do you think would be left if the anger went away? Fear. And many of us would much rather stay angry than be afraid. So we hold on to it, the anger, the power, the illusion of control. But David realized his limitations. And it made him so scared that he pushed God away altogether. Look at verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? What am I going to do with this? He's God, I'm me. So you know what he did? He left the ark at some guy's house. <laughs> Look at verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Can you imagine that? You know, Obed just working on his farm. And all of a sudden, 30,000 soldiers came to his house in a panic, saying, take this ark, you know, we don't want it, and just rides away. But it was at Obed's house where a turning point of sorts happened. Something happened there. And when David heard about what happened, his cycle of anger and fear turned into singing and dancing. Now, a lot of us, 
I think we, we find ourselves stuck in the same cycle that David was in. Don't we? You know that cycle, right? It, it goes like this. Everything's fine with God. And then God lets something happen. And then we get angry. And then we get scared and hopeless. And we push God away. And then time passes by. And then everything's fine again with God. And then something else happens. And we get angry again at God. And we push him away again. Then round and round we go. Most of us, for sure me, knows what it feels like to be stuck in that kind of cycle with God. And for a lot of us, that cycle is the majority of our relationship with God, actually. What David saw in Obed's house got him out of that cycle somehow, and it drove him into this deep, joyful worship. What happened? What happened in Obed's house? Well, let's go to our last point. Seeing God's holiness can either make us angry and sad, or angry and afraid, or it can make us sing and dance. Last point. What happened at Obed's house? Well, God blessed his household. That's, that's what happened. And when David heard about it in verse 12, it, it shook him. Why? Because Obed, verse 10 specifies, was a Gittite. A Gittite was a Philistine. Remember one of the bad guys? The guys who took the ark 70 years ago? The guys who's supposed to be the enemies? Obed was one of them. He didn't know what to do with the ark. I mean, maybe David told him, by the way, don't touch it, as he rode off. This is probably it, if that. The point here is that there's no way a Philistine would survive this experience. He's dead, the readers would have thought. Him and his household, they're all done for. But something shocking happened in verse 11. Let's read it. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, three whole months. You know, we don't want to speculate here, but it's hard to not imagine that one of the kids weren't like, you know, touching it, <laughs> or it wasn't covered properly as instructed in Numbers chapter four. We don't know, but, but the point is, it's there for three months, most likely was not treated according to standard. But instead of perishing like Uzzah, what did God do to Obed's family? Read the rest of verse 11. The Lord blessed Obed and his household. God blessed them, what, how? I don't know, maybe it rained a little more? Maybe the crops grew a little faster. Maybe the kids slept in a little longer. If you're a parent, that's a blessing. Maybe the food tasted a little better. Maybe their marriage was a little sweeter. I don't know, but they were blessed. And when David heard this in verse 12, it shook him. It transformed him because it finally made sense to him. He, he finally realized something and it made him so happy that it immediately made him go back to Obed's house, grab the ark of God, and took it home with him. It led him straight back to God. What was it? What was it that David saw that made him so happy? It's God's immeasurable grace. Notice, David never asked Obed, hey man, what's your secret? You know, what did you do right? How did you make the ark bless you? David never asked any of that. You know why? Because David knew there is no way Obed did anything right. There is no way God blessed Obed, Obed based on merit. No way. Obed didn't have an Israelite priest to take care of the ark. He didn't have the infrastructure necessary to handle the ark. David in verse 12 realized this blessing was not earned. It was graciously given in spite of Obed's incompetence. And it clicked in him. This is how I get back to God. By relying on his mercy. 
So without wasting any time, he rushed back to God. He rushed back to the ark, rejoiced in the reconciliation with God, and he was utterly transformed in two visible ways. He became much more obedient, and he became much more humble. Look at verse 13. This time around, he was celebrating again, right, at the end of the passage, but this time around, he was very obedient in his carrying of the ark. Look at verse 13. Those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. You see, he he got rid of the cart, right? No more cart. And now priests bore or carried the ark as God instructed. How do we know that they're priests? Because it says after six steps, they sacrifice an animal. Only priests would do this back then. He became much more obedient. See, God's grace didn't make David less obedient. It made him more obedient. But his obedience now is no longer an attempt to subdue God's power, but it's rather because he's been subdued by God's grace. And also made him more humble. Look at verse 14. David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, a lot of people unfortunately misunderstand this verse and says, look, David's dancing um, in his underwear during worship, so we can dance in our flip-flops at church. (laughs) You're missing the point. Okay, whether or not you think you can go to church on flip-flops or not, that, that's not the point here. That discussion isn't even in the author's mind. The point here is that the author's trying to contrast David's attitude in the beginning of the story with how he is now at the end of the story. Before, in the beginning of the story, remember, he was on his horse, right? He was, he was robed in kingly splendor. He was carrying the ark of God like it's his trophy. But now, he's not on a horse. He's dancing on the floor. And he's wearing a linen ephod. Linen ephods is what priests would wear back then. Servants of the Lord. This is the common man's clothing. The point here is that David got off his high horse, metaphorically and literally, took off his kingly robe and shed his sense of self-importance. And he's saying, I'm just a servant of God, a common man. Take the spotlight off of me and put it unto God. That's the point. David was utterly changed by God's grace. He started off as prideful and disobedient, thinking that him beating the Philistines and freeing the ark somehow made God owe him a favor or something. And now at the end of the story, after seeing God's holiness, he's humble and obedient because he realized God beat the Philistines, not him. And God owes him nothing. But yet, God's willing to forgive David of his pride and take him back because of grace and mercy. That changes life. Look, a lot of us have the wrong narrative in our minds. A lot of us have this narrative that David had in verses 1 to 5. We think like this. I'm a decent person. And because I'm a decent person, God probably should treat me a certain way, right? See, thinking like that is putting God on a cart. It's insulting to him, and it brings us no joy. All it brings us is the illusion of power. So God took out the loudspeaker and fixed the narrative in David's head. And now in verses 12 to 15, David sees it's a different narrative now. God doesn't owe David any kind of treatment. David is the one who owes God a certain kind of treatment, but yet David failed drastically. However, God still blessed David, not because of merit, but because of his immeasurable, unscalable, holy mercy. That's what changed David's life. Now you may think, okay, that's great, but how does that apply to me, right? There's no ark today. 
Obed's not alive today. How can I see God's mercy like David did in this bizarre way and escape the cycle that David was in that I feel like I'm still in as well often? Well, isn't it interesting? You know, you read so many stories in the New Testament about Jesus. And he kind of acts like the ark of God, but with the opposite effect, right? He walks around town, but when people would touch him or his cloak, they didn't die. Instead, they got healed. The blind all of a sudden see. Uh, the lepers are cleansed. The lame walks. The die. The dead rises. What happened in Obed's house happened everywhere Jesus walked. Isn't that interesting? People got blessed. When Jesus embraced sinners, they didn't die. They got better. They lived. But instead, you knew who did die? Jesus did. What's going to get you running back to God and out of this cycle like David is when you realize that this holy God who should have cursed you and me for failing to worship him as we ought instead blessed us, not because of merit, but because of the cross. That's the narrative. The one who owes you nothing gave you everything. Actually, let me rephrase that. The narrative is better than that. The one who owed you only wrath gave you eternal blessing because he took all that wrath upon himself. That's the narrative of the universe. That's the meta-reality the Bible claims is true. And if God loves you like he loves David, he's going to keep taking out that loudspeaker. Because oftentimes, that's the only way we listen. And that's the only way our narratives in our heads can be changed and, and, and for God to make us see the true story that governs reality, the story of the cross. Will you listen? Will you? Will you see what David saw in Obed's house on the cross of Christ? And will you stop living your life as if God owes you something? Look, if that's the narrative you have in your head, you're going to always be angry and afraid all the time. You'll run away from God all the time at every drop of suffering you experience. But if you live your life remembering that the one who owes you nothing gave you everything, if, if that's the narrative you have in your mind, then, then God will get the worship he deserves from you. And then you'll experience a kind of joy that is unscalable by any of the scales this world can offer you. Like David at the end of the story. As we close our sermon today, there's a psalm uh, that many Old Testament scholars agree was most likely the song David was singing when he was in his linen ephod, entering into the gates of Jerusalem with the ark. It's Psalm 25. I'm sorry, Psalm 24. And, and as we close the sermon today, I, I want to invite all of you to, to either open up your Bibles or go to your phones, or follow along uh, on the screen as well, and read out loud with me the song of David that he was singing at the end of our story today. Psalm chapter 24, verse 7 to 10. Please read out loud with me. This is, this is the song of joy that David sung after he saw the holiness of God. Psalm 25, verse 7 to 10. Read with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty 
the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is Christ, and he came out of the cross so that you may enter into the gates of Jerusalem. He who owed you nothing gave you everything. Rejoice, be thankful, move forward. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we repent of our unthankfulness, of our ingratitude, of our ability to see the bad tree in the middle of a amazing forest. We often have a different narrative we operate with in our day-to-day lives, which causes us to feel certain things toward you. Forgive us for thinking you owe us anything. You are holy and completely other. The only thing you owe us, the only thing you owe me, is wrath. But yet, you gave me everything. You gave us everything. And you took all that wrath upon yourself so that you can do unto us what you did unto Obed, and you blessed us, your enemies. Help that narrative, help that worldview seep deep, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, that it affects the way we live our lives and the way we feel things in our day-to-day basis. We beg you, Father, for this mercy. Help us. And therefore, you can receive the glory and the praise that you deserve out of us the thankfulness and the gratitude that is rightly yours out of your creatures. Take it from us, Father, by helping us first see the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.